Genesis chapter 22. I'm sorry we didn't get that finished last week, but we ran out of time. If you weren't here, let me remind you, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It certainly is one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis. As we saw in verse 1 of chapter 22, God tests Abraham. And obviously, it's a test of his faith. And God asks him to do something which is irrational, something that makes no sense. Offer his covenant son Isaac to him on an altar he was to build on Mount Moriah. And we looked at this in terms of the map last week. Uh, remember that Abraham had settled, uh, he's still nomadic herder with all his herds and everything, but he settled in Beersheba, which is right on the edge of the Negev Desert. And God says, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, which is almost due north, and it was a three-day walk. And Moriah, Mount Moriah, was in the town at that time called Salem. We know that is Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says, that is where Solomon built the temple. In addition, <clears throat> Golgotha is on Mount Moriah. So you have three extremely important events in biblical history on the same mountain. You have this offering, you have the building of the temple, and you have Golgotha, i.e. the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his cross. And so what you have here is Abraham, it, to me, it's, I've studied this and taught this and preached this many times, that each time I do, I still remain astounded at the faith of Abraham. I mean, that's the point of this chapter, is his faith. He so trusts God. And as we, we talked a little bit about from verse 5, he says to the servants who went with them, the boy and I are going to go up to the top of this mountain. You wait here, and we, it's first person plural, we will return to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 tells us, uh, or 19, excuse me, tells us that Abraham believed that God would bring his son back from the dead. So that's... Um, you have so many things going on, but you know, he believed what God said about the promise, the covenant, which we've studied many times so far, and that meant that that covenant son is going to live, even if it means I sacrifice him to God and God brings him back to life. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a staggering faith. And I say this very transparently, it is hard for me to envision being able to do what Abraham did. Because I have a son. We, we waited 12 years for Jonathan. And to, to need to offer him to God, ugh, I just the faith that he had was just absolutely remarkable. And as you know, God intervenes. There's an animal, a ram caught in the thicket on the mount, and then he offers him as a substitute. And then Je Abraham changes the name of this place, and he calls it Jehovah-Jireh. I wrote that on the board where we were last week. It's Hebrew, Yahweh, Jireh, God will provide. Yahweh will provide. And that becomes a major theme throughout the Bible, that God provides. And then we ended last time, the very end of verse 14, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On Literally, on Yahweh's mountain there will be provision. Now, Abraham meant that, that God provided a substitute for his son. 
But that statement on Yahweh's mountain, it will be provided, has enormous implications as the thread of redemption is knit throughout the Bible. Because as I said a moment ago, the temple is built there, Second Chronicles 3, 1 tells us that. This is where Gogotha is. It just, it's, it's, it's an important statement. It's a declaratory statement that God will provide on this mountain. And it can be interpreted as it should be, even in this context, a redemptive purpose. God redeems Isaac by providing a substitute. Now, this preaches well. 2,000 years later, another father and son would walk the same mountain, but there would be no substitute for that son. He would be the substitute. That preaches well, doesn't it? That's, I mean, that's, but it's theologically and biblically correct. That's, of course, God the Father and God the Son. So there were three things that you mentioned on, on Mount Moriah. Um, I look at numbers sometimes, and the three is, is significant. But will there be a fourth when the temple is rebuilt then? Well, I think so. Um, this gets into some stuff with eschatology. But I do believe the temple will be rebuilt on Mount Moriah, where Temple Mount is. And that temple will be the temple during the kingdom reign of Christ. You know, Ezekiel talks about that in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 of his uh, uh, prophetic book. So I think so. That's right. And, and uh, well, that's, yes, Woody. I'm no, I'm, I'm going back to the beginning of 22, where God was, God was so uh, explicit that's right. when he told when he told Abraham, take your son, mm. your only son, mm. Isaac, mm. whom you love, mm. and go to the region of Moriah mm. and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Mm. So he didn't pull any punches. You know, yeah. he just, it's very explicit very, and very precise in detail. Your only son, whom you yeah, love. yeah, yeah. Take him up there and burn him. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He didn't have two sons. So why do they say your only son? Well, remember, <clears throat> Ishmael is not the covenant son. Right. And he, we will find later in, in the book of, of, uh, of Genesis here that Abraham will have other sons and other children. But the uniqueness, and that's what starts with Genesis 12, the uniqueness of Isaac is he's the covenant son. He's the son through which the covenant promise will be fulfilled. And there are so many ways you can start to unpack that but that includes the Lord Jesus Christ is a descendant of Isaac, if you really want to stretch it out for 2,000 years. So um, this is the unique son of Abraham. Abraham has many children, ultimately, but there is one unique child, and that's the covenant child. And that's the one that he's explicitly, as Woody said, God is saying, I want you to give him back to me. I gave him to you. I want you to give him back to me. Now, I don't know. Uh, it, uh, we have a lot of different traditions of the Christian faith around a table like this. Uh, most of you, if you've had children, uh, you've had your ch children either baptized, if that's part of your tradition, or dedicated. I come from a tradition where we don't practice infant baptism. We practice 
believer's baptism. But the point I'm making is for both of my children, we had a very important dedication service for them. Uh, our, our son, of whom we were still in Texas when we adopted Jonathan and then Joanna when we were here. But part of dedication, and that's kind of the language of it, God has given you the child, now you're giving the child back to God. In the sense that, I mean, not... I mean, not in a tactile way, but spiritually, you're just dedicating that child to the Lord. You're giving him back, giving him or her back to the Lord. And I mean, there's just, that's very important. Um, at least I think it is. Again, I don't know what traditions you all come from, but to, to see your child as a gift from the Lord, i.e., therefore, stewardship from the Lord, and it's important then to understand that you are in effect to give that child back to him. Another way of saying this is an original sentence with me, but we are to raise our children, but it is God who's raising them through us. In other words, we, and I think this is right, we are like his instruments that he uses. And so if we're not walking with the Lord and we're not serious about our faith and we're not committed, then why would we be surprised if our children aren't? But if we are and we're serious about it, that, that will influence how our children and, in effect, the choices they make and how they're going to live their lives. That so we're giving our children back to the Lord. That really is what God is asking uh, Abraham to do here. I gave him to you, now give him back to me. Was he willing to do that? The answer to the question is yes, he was. So I'll several hands are in front. You know, the, the, the men here um, around the table, a lot of us are fathers. So forth. Um, Isaac was a participant Absolutely. in this we act of faith that. by his father and just his words to his son um, that had to have grown his faith Absolutely. don't you think yeah. um, when he yeah. saw all of this happening and reflected on it over the rest of his life Absolutely. has to be and his, there's a dynamic here that the scriptures are just silent on this, but there's a dynamic here of Isaac's trust and confidence in his father as well as his trust and confidence in God. I mean, you know, Isaac, I mean, Isaac by this time is a young teenager and a 112, 13-year-old man can't lift a teenager up on an altar unless the teenager cooperates <laughs> you know what i mean so there is a trust there the scriptures are silent on that but it implies it as you just read it father where's the sacrifice answer the lord will provide okay dad got it get to the top of moriah i don't know whether abraham communicated this verbally or just by his act son you're the sacrifice it's just, I mean, just think about that. So I just, oh my goodness, I don't know whether Abraham would have said, Isaac, I'm doing this in obedience to God because I trust him. He has provided for me for 25 years. He will provide here. But he wants me to give you back to him. Okay, Dad. And he raises the knife. I mean, just think of it. He raises the knife. Textile, he raises the knife. Here's Isaac looking at him. He didn't, he didn't put him asleep. You know, he, did, he didn't give him a, a sedative. He's staring at his father, and, and God stops him. 
says, now I know that you will withhold nothing from me. And that's where we are in verse 16. Was I, did I see another hand? Yeah. I don't know if it's significant or not, but in verse 8, what he tells his son indicates, indicates that maybe he did believe that God would provide a land. He was not looking for resurrection. Is that... I, I don't, I'm going to probably push back on that because I'm not sure... I'm not sure that we can necessarily conclude that that's what Abraham's thinking. Oh, God will provide an animal. Was he then lying to Isaac or just being positive, optimistic? Well, he says, God will provide himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. Meaning, you will be the lamb. I mean, I mean, in other words, be, yeah. and it is because of, and I say that only because without Hebrews eleven nineteen, I maybe couldn't be as firm on that. But eleven nineteen says that Abraham believed God would restore his the life of his son. So there, so there is that sense that he's willing to do what God is going to uh, asking him to do. And yet he just, he says to Isaac, you know, God will provide this. God will provide the lamb. God will provide the sacrifice. And, you know, that's why just, I always, there are two people that are not discussed much in this. One is Isaac and the faith and trust in his father. But don't forget Sarah. Sarah's not going to hear about this until three days after. Because remember we read that last day, it's a three-day journey. So she's got to wait three, well, Three days up, presumably three days. So she waits another week till she hears. I mean, she's just saying, we have nothing in the Bible that says, don't you dare take him up to Moriah. No. So, I mean, you just have a family. I don't know, they've been through so much, 25 years of waiting. But you have this family willing to do what God, God gave them their son. God is asking them to give their son back. And there is... Every indication is there's a willingness to do that. Uh, and I don't know if you, you had mentioned this before when we were talking about when God made the covenant with Abraham, but Isaac being the covenant's son, and when Abraham, when God made the covenant with him, Abraham had said, how do I know, mm-hmm. you know, that this is your promise, that your promise is good, and, and God to take the animals, mm-hmm. you know, the covenant is and, cut. Mm-hmm. And the, what the flame of God's spirit went mm-hmm. through, which which means, I don't remember if you said this or if I've heard this elsewhere, but which means if I renege on this promise, on this covenant, may I be like these animals. That's, like that. that's exact. I said that, but that's exactly yeah, what that and means. So, mm-hmm. he, so he would have had that in his mind. This mm-hmm. is, and, and like if, if God had said, uh, like, Abraham, get up and kill your son, he, Abraham would have known that's not. That's not, I mean, God wouldn't have told him to do that. This was more of a take your covenant son, you know, whom you love, you know. And, and so he would have it kind of had that in the back of his head, right? Yeah. Yes, but I think that's where, that's the, that's the essence and energizing power of his faith. God has asked me to give Isaac back to him, but God's going to, God is going to keep his promise that through Isaac is going to come the nation to the numerous stars of the sky, etc., that's why, again, I keep coming back without Hebrews eleven nineteen, that he <coughs> believed God would bring him back to life. He's going to keep his promise. I give him back, but God will give him back to me. 
I mean, it's just, and he believed it because it is, as you're correct, from Genesis 17, it's an unconditional, unilateral covenant. It's binding on God, not Abraham. And so, I mean, all that Abraham is thinking about. And so he's just, by this time, 25 years, well, now it's another 12 years, so it's like 37 years later or so, you see the faith of this man this extraordinary, deep-seated trust in God. No matter what happens, God's going to keep his promise. Even if I have to kill Isaac, he'll give him back to me. And that's, that's a faith that is very hard for me to identify with. Maybe for you guys it's easy. Let's look at verse 16. Can we presume that since there's not a lot about Isaac, that it was kind of status quo through his life? I'm not sure what you mean by status quo, Matt. Uh, he just kind of did what God wanted, but there wasn't anything dramatic in there like we've seen with every other man in the Bible. Pretty much did something stupid. Yeah, <laughs> he well, himself or, you know. well, I think uh, that's, I think if I'm understanding all back of your question, you are correct. There's very little said about, there's only a couple chapters on Isaac. Uh, and the most significant thing is, is Isaac sends uh, servant to go get well anyway we'll get into that in just a little bit but he, he must have the faith of his father rubbed off on him and his life was a life of faith as far as we can tell but there's not the testing of his faith like there was for for abraham but his that is when you go then from isaac to jacob then and, of course, Jacob is much more complicated, and there's just all kinds of things happening in Jacob's life. But you have Jacob, who is a man who, unlike Abraham and unlike Isaac, he wants to do things his way. Jacob is a manipulator. He's the conniver. And he will, he will do things his way, and God has to break him of that. But in that in that life of trying to do everything his way, you know, he steals the covenant promises, he steals the blessing from from Esau and all that, and you'll see this. It's just it's it's really amazing, and yet despite all that duplicity, God still blesses, still blesses. But He breaks him. That's one of the great stories of, of Jacob, how God breaks Jacob of his duplicity. We'll get to that. That's that, we'll get to that in November. At the rate we're going. <laughs> How do you tie Christianity? Um, you know, believe that Christ died for our sins and we're saved through Christ. To that moment, did, I understand that you know the Jewish religion pretty much started with Abraham, but didn't Christianity, when he was going to sacrifice his son, that faith in God, is that kind of when Christianity? Can we pull that as when we started? But we can't because it, it wasn't Christ. You mean here Genesis 22? Yeah. You're asking the question very specifically and using the term Christianity. And Christianity means Christ, Messiah. That's what I'm saying. So you, you, have to, you have to answer that question by wrapping all of the events around Jesus to see the beginning of Christianity. But remember something. 
and this, again, this sentence is not original with me. In Jesus is the Old Testament fulfilled and the New Testament promises made. So I know Jesus is, Jesus is the watershed of human history. And it's the Gospel of Matthew that is so important here. Seventy times the Old Testament is either quoted or alluded to in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's always used fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. So Jesus fulfills all 357 promises about Messiah, which means he fulfills the Old Testament. So that the inextricable linkage, the inextricable linkage of old and new is in Jesus. And he fulfills the law, fulfills the sacrifices, all of that. But if you ask it as the way you're asking as a historical event, it is it is Christ. It is Jesus, his public ministry, his death, burial, and, sac- death, burial, and resurrection. That's the beginning of Christianity. Because it's in Christ, all the old is fulfilled and the new is promised. And that's, you know, the, the, the aspect of that is then the second coming, the second advent, all that Jesus is going to do when he returns. All right, look at verse 16. It's, we've taken almost half the class and we've yet to get into the text. of what, But it's, it's important yet because what you see here in verse 16, excuse me, verse 15, is something quite remarkable. God is about to make an oath a divine oath. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, the first time was when he told him to go to Moriah, and said, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh. So God is taking a divine oath. He's making, he's reiterating the promise, but now in addition it's being unilateral and unconditional, it's binding on him and all that, he now wraps it around a divine oath. I am swearing this by myself, not by heaven, not by the throne, but by myself, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. So God is going to make the same promise again, but he's going to add a second promise. Because you have done this and not withhold your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, the sand, and the seashore. That's not new. That's a reiteration. Every time, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis, I mean, every time God keeps reiterating that. But then he adds, And you and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, we can understand that in two ways. Shall possess the gate and your offspring. Now, men, offspring is singular. That's why the ESV translates it, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
Now, offspring as sing, now follow me here. I know this is a little bit technical, but sometimes you just have to do this to really understand what the text is teaching us here. Offspring is singular, but can be a collective noun. Do you understand what I mean by that? Collective in meaning a whole group, singularly that whole group. So it could be, and your offspring meaning the children of Israel shall possess the gates of his enemies. Okay, what does that mean? The Canaanites. Right? Because God promised Canaan to the descendants of Abraham. Right? Genesis 12, verse 7, that's reiterated again and again and again and again. So you could understand that to mean that your offspring, i.e. the children of Israel, shall possess the gates of your enemies, the Canaanites. I promised you the land of Canaan, you'll get it. Which is what the book of Joshua is all about. How the children of Israel conquer Canaan. However, there's something else I want you to notice. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's a reiteration of another part of the covenant promise. Land, seed, and blessing. You see all three of them right here. Land, seed, and blessing. But you see, Paul picks up on that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And he says, this is referring to Jesus. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. What Paul says in Galatians 3.19 is this is the blessing of salvation. This is the blessing of redemption, of justification. So, and that is the correct way to understand the, the full application of this. So possessing the gates of his enemy, offspring singular, possessing the gates of his enemies, who's the enemy of Jesus? Satan. He will conquer Satan. Because as you know, when we studied Genesis chapter 3, way, way back, months ago, Satan usurped the role God had given to Adam. Adam was to be his dominion steward representing him, being his steward over his planet Earth, his creation. Satan usurped that. He's called the god of the age, the prince of the power of the air, etc., etc. And what God is doing now, because humanity joined the rebellion against God in Genesis 3, the way in which God's going to undo that rebellion is sending his son. So what this, this verse is loaded with the redemptive themes throughout the rest of the Bible. That's why, again, I'll say it one more time. In Genesis, Galatians, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 16, 17, 18, 19, that whole paragraph, Paul picks up on that and says that all, in you all the nations will be blessed, is much larger than just the blessing of prosperity. It's the blessing of salvation. And the offspring singular, the seed singular, is not just the collective noun of the children of Israel possessing the Canaanite land. It's also Jesus, the seed, singular. The seed of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. He's a Jew. Will conquer and possess Satan's kingdom. Jesus is conquering planet Earth spiritually. He's getting it back by going to the cross, dying, being resurrected, ascending back to the Father, creating the church, which is his representatives now on earth. So, I mean, 
I, I don't know if you're following everything I tried to develop here. Verse 17 is an astonishingly important verse. Because as we said a moment ago, God is swearing this. He's making this oath by himself, on himself. I'm guaranteeing this. And he reiterates the promise. Seed is numerous to the stars and sand and all that. But your offspring shall bless the gates of his enemy. And in you, all the nations will be blessed. Now when you read that, and then you connect it with Galatians 3, you see this larger redemptive salvation theme. The blessing is the blessing of salvation. He will crush the serpent's head, Galatians 3.15. He will crush his enemies, Psalm 2. When he returns, he will defeat his enemies, cast them into the lake of fire, and rule and reign of king of kings and lord of lords. That's all. All of those themes are pregnant in this particular verse. As a result of Abraham believing. Yes, because you were willing to do this. I'm going to reiterate the promise one more time, but I'm going to swear it on my own, by my own name. And that ends with, because you have obeyed me. Yes, because because of your faith, and that's correct. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's just as... I mean, I know we don't get excited about things in this class, but this is really exciting. God is, God's plan will never be stopped. It's just not going to be stopped. What he has planned and what he has decreed in terms of salvation, it will occur. All right? Yeah, friend. You know, um, because we pray, all of us pray, we Pray, expecting God to answer in his own way, not necessarily the way we pray, but um, if we're faithful to him and really believe, uh, as I mean, there's prayer going on here too. I mean, they're just not walking through life and right. getting the groceries and doing a bunch of, I mean, they're praying to a God that's alive and, and cares and loves and um, through Christ today. And so we may not know exactly, like he didn't know exactly how this was going to all exactly. unfold. Exactly, all the details, that's right. But I guess they're just as real for us today as they were for Abraham back then, knowing that we have this kind of God who hears our prayers and will unfold them in a way that blesses us and encourages us in our in our faith. When you say, I mean, th- these aren't just characters; these can be us as well today, as as we go through our lives. Well, yeah, I, I'm all that you're saying. Let's just put it in a simple principle: yeah. God wants us to trust Him with all the promises He made to us, as much as Abraham trusted Him, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the specifics. Trust God. It's worthy to trust God. And that's, you know, Fred, it's very easy for you and me to have this conversation with everybody listening, and we all shake our heads, yes, that's right, amen. And then tomorrow morning, when a real significant <laughs> test of our faith comes, do we really believe this? I mean, that's the, that's the challenge. And, and Abraham, is, you know, we've said this quite a few times, God waited, excuse me, Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. 
And we've talked, among many other things, that's developing his faith, testing his faith. This is the final test. And in spite of everything else, he is a man of faith. He ups and downs, he falls. I mean, when he agreed to do what Sarah wanted and go into Hagar and have that, that was a terrible disobedient act. Lack of trust. But he got back on track. When he went down, when he went to, you know, Abimelech, and, you know, we read about that a couple weeks ago, and, you know, Sarah just had heard a year from now you're going to have your baby and all that, and he lies and says, she's my sister. Well, I even tell the truth. I'm afraid. All right. But now, you know, Abram, go to Moriah. Give my son, give your son back to me. Okay, God. I'll do it. And then God just, I mean, he, God is honoring the astonishing faith of this man by swearing again by himself, I will keep it. But he adds this larger redemptive theme. Your offspring, collective, singular noun. But Paul says that collective, singular noun, offspring or seed means Jesus. Because that possessing of the gates of the enemy, that's Satan. And all the nations will be lost salvation. So through the descendant of Abraham will come salvation. And the New Testament tells us that descendant is Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Got it? All right. Verse 19. This is, it's almost like you take a little needle and push it into the balloon. Oh, no. It's so mundane. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went back to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's kind of, there, there's one more major event in Abraham's life that we're going to look at. It's the next chapter. And we're not going to read all verse 20 through 24. But there's a small genealogy. A genealogy of his brother Nahor. But I want you to notice in verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. So this mini genealogy, verse 20 through 24, is to show the genealogical connection to Rebekah. Who's Rebekah? She will be the wife of Isaac. That's all it's doing. Those names are, some of them are possible. I'm not going to go through it. I'm not going to read it. The important thing is verse 23. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Okay, got it. Don't forget that. It's like the text is saying, don't forget that. Because 23, chapter 23, is going to tell us how Rebekah intersects with Abraham, i.e. his son. Isaac. You know, we started this a long time ago, but your worksheet here is it's really coming true to me at least. You said the study the study outline of Genesis is the foundation of our faith. Yeah. And you know, the rest of the Bible. I mean if we don't know Genesis, that's, that's how right. do we relate back to things that we're going to find in that's other right. books. That's right. That's, Woody, I appreciate you remembering that, because that's exactly right. Uh, 
I believe the book of Genesis is one of the most unstudied books of the Bible, and that's a shame because Genesis is the foundational book of the Bible. If you don't understand everything that's going on in Genesis, you don't understand why things start to happen throughout the rest. You won't understand the rest of the Old Testament, and you certainly are not going to understand, we just saw in a minute ago, the important themes that are in the New Testament, this redemptive theme. See, a hard thing for me, I'm a historian. That's one of my four degrees in history, historical theology. And I still, I still struggle with, Lord, why do you take so long to do all this? You know, I mean, it's like, here's Abraham, 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC. And it's another 2,000 years until Jesus shows up. You know, I just think, well, now the way this is unfolding, I think about 50 years maybe, you know. No, it's going to take 2,000 years. The good wine takes time. <laughs> and one of the and Peter answers partially that question. Why does it seem like God is taking so long? He tells us in Second Peter chapter three, the way I paraphrase it, because God is increasing the population of heaven. And that's why made, I think he made he didn't make us automatons because oh yeah, <coughs> he wants us to love him. That's right. That's right. That's right. Just like your, you know, your kids. Sometimes we try to make them love us, but it's better when they just love us. Yeah. Yeah. You buy them ice cream, they're gonna love you. Yeah. Yeah. When you do something tough and you spank them, and they go, "Dad, I'm sorry, I really didn't mean to do that." That's when you love them more. Yep. Absolutely. And when they get older and start having their own kids and they're married, (laughs) and they start saying, "You know, Dad, just my kids have said." Dad, you were right when you, and I thought, man, you didn't say that when you were 14, you know. <laughs> they were pushing back. I'll never make my kids do that. That's never, you know, those kinds of things. So sometimes God does bless. All right. Goodness me, it's 1230 already. Um, chapter 23 is short. It's very short. But it's like, it's a parenthesis. And it's a little parenthesis, but there are two themes in this chapter. Theme of death, it's the death of Sarah, but it's also the theme of the promise. So this isn't hard. I mean, it really isn't hard, but there are a couple of things I want you to, I want you to, to, to see here. The death of Sarah and the promise. Does Abraham and Sarah, do they see God fulfill his promises in their lifetime? No. And here you see an example of it. Because what, what, what Abraham has to do, his faith produces hope. And his hope is for the future, not for his life, but for the future. This, again, is the faith of this man. It's absolutely remarkable. And he doesn't own anything in Canaan. So he has to purchase a plot of land to bury his wife. And you say, oh, it's so mundane. No, that is really, really, really important. Because he will now own land in the promised land. So he's nailing the stake in the ground. This is my land. And I'm going to bury my wife here. And then 
well, anyway, I was going to go forward and say a whole bunch of things. I'm not because I haven't run out of time. Let's just go through. I don't know if we can get through all this. God would like us to get through all this, but I don't think we're going to get through it because we only have about 12 minutes. So let's just see. I'm trying to introduce these things. Sarah lived 127 years. Just a statement of fact. These are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron in the land of Canaan. Now, if you look on your map, I mean, it, you can find it. You really need to find it on this map, the age of the patriarchs. On the other one, it's, um, it's not there. Hebron is down here. If you find Beersheba, just go north a little bit, right along the valley there, and you see a Hebron. Today, I'll just look quick sidebar. Today, Hebron is one of the three major urban areas that, because of the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s, the state of Israel gave back to the Palestinians. So the Palestinian authorities today uh, govern Hebron, and that, that's difficult. When I first started my tours to Israel, we went there. But it's hard to go there now because there's a very strong, the Palestinian Authority is a very strong anti-Israel element there. One of the things that happened, I forget which year it was, but anyway, one of my trips, they, I took my bus with the, the people, and, and we pulled up to the, there's a huge church over the cave of Machpelah, where Abram and Sarah buried, and they started stoning our bus. I thought only, oh and there were little Palestinian kids with slingshots just hurling us, down, and we didn't get out of the bus. And my friend, uh, my guide, we we both said, well, not one, we're not getting out of the bus, but two, I'm not sure we should go. So generally speaking, most tours kind of stay away from Hebron now, because it's that strong Palestinian. There's a lot of if you ever you follow news a lot, there are often lots of riots and violence in Hebron. Uh, today, I'm just telling you a little bit about that in terms of 2016 uh, history. Is but that the, Hamas or is that the no, no, it's uh, it's not Hamas. It's uh, that's Gaza, but it's just the Palestinian. Just a very strong Palestinian. Palestinian Authority governs it. It's very, very strong Palestinian sentiment there. It's very, very anti-Israel. Very strong city. Jericho is another area they 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 got control. Of. Bethlehem is another area they got control of, and that's just a, that's just history. So it's telling us, that, okay, that's where she dies. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from his dead, before his dead, so he rises up you know, after mourning her, and said to the Hittites. Okay, now, comment about this. Hittite is a term used in three different ways in the Old Testament. The great massive Hittite empire, which was in the modern country of Turkey, roughly, and then tribal groups that had spun off from that and settled in the Semitic territories, settled in Israel. It's a small tribal group, and they settled here. So they are the one controlling Hebron. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a Canaanite tribe. They're called the Hittites. So they're in control. So what does Abraham do? He says to them, he goes to Hebron, he goes to the town, he goes to the gate, he, he sits at the gate with the elders of the city and says, verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Now, that should not surprise you. That's who he was. He was a nomad. Where was his home? Mesopotamia. This isn't his land. He's a sojourner. He says, give me property among you for a burning place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. 
Hittites answered Abraham, verse 6, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God. Or you could translate that, a mighty prince. Wow. So here's this Canaanite group of elders at this Canaanite city of Hebron saying, you're somebody special. Okay, now that what that must mean, Woody, that's a great question. What that must mean is now the reputation of Abraham is secure. They've heard about him. They've observed him. You can't have all the herds and all the wealth that he had and be unnoticed. Remember, he's led his, 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 I mean, Beersheba to Hebron isn't very far. It's not a very, it's not very far in distance. So they knew of Abraham and they used this title. You're a prince of God. You're a mighty prince. That doesn't mean, you know, politically you're ruling over a huge amount of territory. It just means you, you are a mighty person. You're a prince of God. You represent someone. And they say, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham arose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, that's a little bit wooden there. It's a little bit, but you understand, this is the picture. This is very typical in the ancient world. They're at the gatehouse. Every city in the ancient world had wall around, had one gate. You enter the gate, there's a big gatehouse. When I would leave my tours, there were lots of areas where you could see that. So they're all sitting there. And Abraham is asking, I want to bury my wife. I want land to do it. I'm suggesting Ephron, who's probably sitting there, he has a little cave down at the end of his property. I want to buy that. What did they say to him? We'll give it to you. Why do you think Abraham says, I want to buy it? It's undisputable that it's his. He wants proof of ownership. We would put it, he wants a sealed, notarized deed. He wants to own it. He wants to do everything that was required in the ancient world as evidence that he owns it. You follow me? Is that also so he's not obligated to them? Yes, he doesn't want, that's ex- that was the other, exactly. He does not in any, wanna, in any way want to feel obligated to these guys. So, now the question is, is Ephron going to let him do it? Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing and said, of all who went in at the gate of his city, and I just described what that means. Verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He's being very deferential, as he should be. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people, if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me. And I may bury my dead there. Okay, you have this exchange. Ephron's saying, I'll give it to you. Abraham's saying, no, I want to buy it. What's the price of the field? Ephraim answered, verse 14, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. 
Abraham, it's not worth that much. 400 shekels of silver, which actually is a fairly high price. 4, Most people, well, it, it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, it's really impossible to bring the 400 shekels into 21st century American currency. I mean, it really is to make it meaningful. But most expositors think this is on the high end of what it was worth. And so it, you, see, you see that, I hope you're seeing the subtleties of this. Ephron is saying, I'll give it to you. Now, it's so small. I mean, it's worth 400 shekels, but it's so small. So what is he saying? It's 400 shekels. I know it's small. What's he really saying? If you want the land, that's what it's going to cost you. <coughs> Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. That last phrase is telling us something. Abraham took the weights and measures of Hebron and weighed it out. Why did he do it that way? So that they could never, ever charge him with fraud. That there's absolute certainty what he's doing. And he's doing this, remember, at the gatehouse of the city. All the elders of the city are sitting there. So what has just happened? He and Ephron have just negotiated a deal, an exchange of property, and Abraham now owns the property. I mean, that's the way you get a deed notarized by all the officials in, in the ancient world. I'm serious. That's exactly what happened. So, verse 17, we are going to finish this. So, the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre. Now, you can find Mamre on your map, uh, the, the other one. You can see where it is. The field that the cave was in it, and all the trees were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as the possession in the presence of Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. Okay, now that verse, verse 17 particularly, is an important verse. Because Abraham did not only buy the cave, what else did he get? The entire field. Now we don't have any dimensions, we don't know how many acres it is, but he has the entire field. So Abraham now owns land in the promised land. He now owns it. And it's been attested to by the leaders of Hebron. It's been negotiated. The payment has been made. It is his. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, verse 19, his wife in the cave in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's really important, in the land of Canaan. Abraham now owns land in Canaan. Field and the cave that is in it, were made over to Abraham as property for a burning place by the Hitler. Two themes of this chapter, death and promise. What do you think is going through Abraham's mind here? Well, we don't know at one level, but his wife has died. She was 127. How old is he? He's 137. Abraham is realizing something. I will never see these promises fulfilled in my lifetime. So I'm preparing for the future. I'm buying land in Canaan, the promised land. Sarah's going to be buried there. 
I'm going to be buried there. Isaac's buried there. Others are buried there. I don't think we quite look at it today as in the ancient world. This was a very significant marker. Abraham, the patriarch, now owned land and will be buried in this land as his wife was. Abraham is preparing for the future. His descendants will see the promise fulfilled. There's one other point about this that comes up in the Gospels. It comes up in Mark chapter 12, and it's in Matthew 2. But Jesus is having a discussion with the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection. They denied it. Pharisees affirmed it, but they didn't believe it. And Jesus says, you guys don't believe in the resurrection, right? And he said it. The verb tense is really important. God is the God of Abraham. And today, God is the God of Abraham. Jesus said that 2,000 years after this. Of Abraham and Sarah. What does that mean? Why does Jesus focus so much on the verb tense, God is? Because Abraham and Sarah die here. They're buried in the cave of Machpelah outside of Hebron. But where is Abraham and Sarah? With God. Their body's there in that grave, but their soul, their spirit's with God. Are they still living? Because Jesus says then, God is the God of the living, not the dead. So what does that mean? Abraham and Sarah, 2,000 years later, still have a relationship with the living God. Jesus says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. When a saint, a person who's put their faith in Christ, dies, it's hard, we mourn, we grieve, but it's also a time of rejoicing. Why? To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Abraham and Sarah still have a relationship with God because they're with him. And the resurrection is when their spirit is united with their body in the new resurrected glorified body, which is what's promised to every one of us. So it's just there's so much going on in this passage that you, you read it, it sounds mundane, but no, don't. One, she dies, but two, he purchases land, which means he now has driven a stake in the land that God promised. He'll never see God fulfill this promise in his lifetime, but he will still see it fulfilled because he's still with the Lord. The God that we love and serve is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. When I did, I think I told you this, but in the end of January, it's actually early February, it was the service. I did my brother-in-law's uh, uh, funeral service, memorial service uh, after he passed away. And we prayed it for him in this class, as you might remember. But that was a great triumph. He was so sick, so debilitated. And I, I made a statement. I, I thought I should, but and then several people said, oh, that was really, that was the right thing to say. We don't want Tim back. 
That's a very selfish thing. Say we want Tim back because Tim is so much better. He's with the Lord. His suffering's over because God is the God of the living. He's with the Lord. We don't want him back. That's hard to say that. I, uh, in another one of my, of my classes that I teach, um, and I don't know if you know, uh, I can't remember if I said this or not, but this man was 75 year, years old. He was traveling to a ministry he was involved in. And a, a, a huge dump truck ran a red light and, and just smashed into his ref. He rolled it. He was killed instantly. Neat guy. I know his wife and him for many years. They went to Israel with me. And I saw Linda at the service, his wife at the service. And she, she three times she said to me, my trust is in Jesus. Noel's with him. And I mean, it's just that there's that. That struggle, that hurt, that pain, that was unexpected, it was a terrible tragedy. But because they know Jesus, there's the pain, there's the tears, there's the hurt, but knows with Jesus. Because God is the God of the living. That's really important to keep this in the context of what's going on in Genesis 23. Now the parenthesis, I can't believe we got through this, so that's really great. So next week we'll start chapter 24, which is... <clears throat> Abraham sends his servant to back to his hometown to find a girl. For whom? For Isaac. And the theme of that chapter is the unbelievable sovereignty of God in chapter 24. I'm going to pray. We've got to get out of here. I'm way late. Sorry. Father, we're grateful for your word. It is a word that is alive and it pierces and pulsates with truth into our hearts. Thank you for the privilege of teaching that you give to me and for these men that come as we are instructed, as we're challenged, and as we apply the word of God to our lives. Uh, we pray that you'll help us to be men of faith. Every single one of us around this uh, uh, table, if we put our faith in Christ, our faith is growing. We never, we never achieve absolute perfection in that. We always have doubts. We're always uncertain. But you're growing our faith. Help us each day to trust you a little more. Help us to have more confidence that you really are in control of our lives, regardless of the hurts and the down points and the, the ups and downs of life. You are with us, and you promised to be with us until the end of the age. You promised, no matter where you go, I always will be with you. You promised your Holy Spirit as a down payment of keeping the rest of your promises. You promised to come back for us. You promised that we would rule and reign with you. Lord, we want to hang on to those promises because you are the God of the living, not of the dead. And we worship you, and we want to walk with you. Help us to represent you well in that spirit. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.